Let's read together in the Word of God as we turn to the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, and we're beginning to read at verse number 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. The Apostle Peter, when he penned his first letter, was writing to Christians who were facing the prospect of persecution. Something that's the experience of many of our brothers and sisters around the world today in different countries. Some of them indeed already knew the reality of suffering for their faith, for Jesus' sake. And for many of them, it was going to get worse. He wasn't writing just to one congregation, but to a number of congregations scattered over a wide area. And hard and difficult days were coming for the Christian community. Now, people who are in such difficult circumstances, who are facing the prospect of hardship for Jesus' sake, need encouragement to remain faithful to the Lord. That, more than anything else, is what they need. They need to be encouraged to face the trials and the persecutions that were ahead. And Peter wants to help the believers, as he puts it in chapter 2 and verse 20, to suffer for doing good, because that's what they're going to do. That's what these Christians have to be ready for, to suffer for doing good, to suffer for being Christians. And Peter wants to encourage them and strengthen them for what lies ahead. So how is he to encourage his readers? What's he going to say to them? Well, one way, of course, that he can encourage them uh, is to remind them of how uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is uh, an example uh, of patiently bearing undeserved suffering. 
That was most certainly true of the Lord Jesus, that he did not deserve the hardships uh, that came upon him. And so it's an encouragement to Christians to remember that our Savior already has faced opposition, hardship, even death. Uh, And so he writes, again, chapter 2 and verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That'll encourage them. That'll help to strengthen them. And yet, of course, having an example isn't enough. We can have good examples that we find we're not able to follow, that they're not able to imitate. So we need more than an example. These Christians reading Peter's letter need more than an example to follow. They might well be saying to themselves, well, it's too difficult. I can't do that. And so then Peter brings really what's the greatest encouragement for Christians. And that's to remember how, by faith, we share in the fruit, in the results of what Christ has suffered. That we benefit from what the Lord Jesus endured in bearing that hardship, indeed in going to the cross. We reap the benefit. We receive richly. And that, more than anything else, will strengthen and prepare Christians to face opposition and hardship. And Peter's focusing, of course, on the work that Christ has done to provide salvation for sinners. He takes us right to the heart of the gospel. And he does that in the last verse that we read earlier in chapter 3, verse 18. And this is the verse we want to particularly focus our attention on today. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And so we're thinking today of Christ died for us. Christ died for us. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the message we all need to hear and take to heart. And that's the message that would encourage and strengthen Peter's readers to face whatever it was going to cost them for being Christians. And if it should be in God's plan uh, that we may face opposition and hardship for being Christians, here's the truth we need more than anything else. Christ died for us. Here's a great Savior and a great salvation. So we're thinking of the work of Christ, what he has done for people like you and me. And we see, first of all, uh, as Peter writes here, Christ's work is costly. Christ's work is costly. Christ died for sins once for all. That is the very heart of the gospel. Now, if you happen to be uh, reading in the ESV uh, translation, uh, it'll say Christ suffered for sins once for all. Uh, There are different readings in in the manuscripts, but if it is suffered, well, he suffered to the point of death. 
That's what's crucial about the work of Christ. He died for sins once for all. And Peter goes on later in the verse, he was put to death in the body. And so he's stressing that the work that Jesus has done in relation to sin, the work that he has done for sinners like us, is bound up inextricably with his death. If you discount the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, there isn't a gospel. There isn't anything for us. His death is crucial. It is absolutely vital. The heart of the gospel message is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that so? Why is the death of Christ so significant? Well, we have to come back to the problem that he was dealing with. Back to what's wrong with us spiritually. Because the Bible spells out clearly for us that the nature of our sin against a holy God is such that it can be dealt with only by death. It deserves the death penalty. That's the reality of sin. Disobeying God, of living without regard to him, of putting ourselves first. All the things that make up sin, according to the Bible. It's against a holy God. And it is so serious that the only penalty that's fitting is death. That's why we read, uh, for example, in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 9, uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There, there's no way of salvation. There is no uh, atonement. There's no paying for sin apart from death. And if we don't realize that, we haven't fully understood how serious a thing sin is. If it requires death, then it is a very grave matter. And you see that really made visible for us in the Old Testament. You'll know that there are large parts of the Old Testament that describe various sacrifices for sin. Animals that were sacrificed on the altar in the tabernacle and then in the temple to deal with sin. But of course, no animal could be an appropriate, a fitting sacrifice in the place of a human being made in God's image. We couldn't really imagine uh, that any kind of an animal or any number of animals sacrificed really were a fitting payment for the sins of a person like me made in God's image. And the Old Testament never suggests that those animal sacrifices really took away sin and really cleansed the heart of the sinner. They didn't. They were given by God as a temporary measure. And they were given really as a picture for everyone as to what was needed. Blood had to be shed if sins were to be forgiven. There's no easier way. There's no way that's less costly that will do the job. But those sacrifices in the Old Testament, year after year, century after century, 
were really telling us there's the blood of a sacrifice that will be needed to take away sins. But what's the sacrifice? It's not bulls or goats or, or lambs. It's the Messiah. It's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those sacrifices were pictures of what Christ would come and do. The precious blood of Christ uh, that Peter writes about in the first chapter of his letter. He says we weren't saved. We're not saved by, uh, by the blood of bulls and goats and so on. We're saved by the precious blood of Christ. The one who's both God and man. The perfect saviour. The one who was pictured throughout the Old Testament. Waiting, waiting until the sacrifice would come. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who offers that sacrifice. And it is costly because it requires the complete self-giving of the Lord Jesus. And the one who gave himself on the cross is infinitely glorious. He's the Son of God. Yes, he shares our human nature, but he is also the Son of God. Infinitely costly sacrifice. But that tells us how much God loves sinners, that he should provide the sacrifice, that in his Son he should be the sacrifice. That's how much he loves us. Christ's work is costly. You couldn't put a price on it. It's of infinite value. Christ's work is costly. Christ's work, secondly, is substitutionary. It's substitutionary. Now, we're familiar with the idea of a substitute. A substitute takes the place of someone else and does what they should have done. And you have substitutes in many areas of life. But here is the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute, taking the place of those that he has come to save. The righteous for the unrighteous, Peter says here. That's the substitution in place of people who were unrighteous. Here is one who is righteous, taking our place. One who deserved nothing but blessedness because he was perfectly righteous. Takes the place, dies as a substitute for those who deserved only condemnation and judgment. That's the substitution that takes place in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous one takes the place of sinners. And the Bible stresses often the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Hebrews 4, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. It's hard for us to, to understand someone without sin because we are all sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ was without sin. He never broke God's law. He never committed sin of any kind. And that's essential if he's going to save us. 
If he's going to take our sins, he can't have any sins of his own. If Jesus had sins of his own, he would have had to die for them. And he couldn't do anything for us. It was absolutely necessary that the Savior had no sin of his own. And the Lord Jesus Christ had no sin of his own. What he does is in our place. His life and his death and his resurrection. It's as a substitute for people like us. It's taking our place. It's dying the death that you and I deserve to die. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken the guilt and the punishment of the people Peter describes here as the unrighteous. That's us. That's every human being. Without any exception, Christ alone is the exception. We are unrighteous. We've broken God's law. We've disobeyed him. We live for ourselves, not for God. We are unrighteous. And he died for unrighteous people. He died for all those who will ever trust in him for salvation. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Isn't that amazing? One who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was made to be sin. He's not a sinner, never was, but he is treated as a sinner, made to be sin. The whole burden of the guilt and the sin of everyone who will ever trust in him was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. Everything that we deserve was laid in Christ. That's the burden he was carrying. He took our place. And so that everything that Christ has done is counted as if we had done it. You see, the sins that you and I have done, they're counted as if Christ had done them. And he takes the punishment. And all the righteousness of Jesus, his life of perfect obedience, his death on the cross, it's counted as ours. As if we had lived that life and we had died that death on the cross. That's the substitution. Christ takes our place and he bears everything that's due to us for our sins. And we are given the righteousness of Christ. His work is counted as if we'd done it. As if we had been on the cross at Calvary. As if we had been saying, as Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He sang it in Psalm 22. But he cried it out so that we wouldn't. He's taken our sin. He's taken our place. The work of Christ is costly. What a cost. The work of Christ is substitutionary. He takes our place. He does what we couldn't do. 
He does it for us, unrighteous people. And he's the righteous one. Christ's work is substitutionary. Peter also tells us here that Christ's work is effective. It's effective. He might have done all of this, and yet nothing result from it. But that isn't the case. Peter uses a single word in the, in the original Greek that he was writing. One little word, but a very important word. And sometimes in the Bible, little words mean big things. And that's true here. It's translated uh, for us once for all. Christ died for sins once for all. It's just one word in the original. Once for all. And that little word has a big significance. It tells us, as one uh, commentator on this verse says, the absolute sufficiency and the unique value of Christ's sacrifice. All of that in one little word, once for all. Absolute sufficiency, unique value. It is all there in the work of Christ. Everything sinners like you and I need. What a difference from the Old Testament and day after day, year after year, sacrifices were offered again and again and again. Christ's sacrifice is once for all. It never need be repeated. It never will be repeated. And we can be absolutely sure, no doubt in our minds whatsoever, that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided salvation. There'd be no doubt in our minds about that. There is salvation in Christ. He died for sins once for all. Complete, perfect, no repetition needed, nothing that we add to it. It's all there in Christ. It is effective. It does precisely what God has planned. You know, sometimes you know, we have plans and we try and fulfill them and there's something that doesn't quite work out the way we wanted. Not so with the work of Christ. It fulfills God's plan in every detail. Peter tells us its goal was to bring you to God. To bring you to God. That's what the work of Christ does. It brings people like us to God. Two things it is telling us. First of all, it's telling us about reconciliation. You see, to bring us to God tells us we were at a distance from God. We were at a long distance from God because we're sinners, we're outside his presence, we don't approach him, we stay away from God in fear and trembling. We're God's enemies. That's how the Bible puts it. We need to be reconciled to God. And the problem, of course, is our sin. That's why we're at a distance. That's why we're God's enemies. Sin is a barrier. It's like a great wall between us and God. But the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection 
has taken down the wall. The barrier is removed. We are reconciled to God. We're not enemies anymore. That's what the Savior has accomplished. Now we have a new relationship to God. Not enemies, not strangers, not outsiders. Now, as the Bible tells us, we're children of God. That's how John puts it, 1 John 3, verse 1. We are children of God. Once we were enemies, once we were strangers, we were outsiders. Now, in the work of Christ, we are reconciled to God. We're children of God. Could you imagine a greater transformation than that? You couldn't. From an enemy of God to a child of God. That's what Christ accomplishes. Yes, indeed, the work of Christ is effective. He's done what's needed. There's reconciliation. We're brought to God. And it also speaks to us of consecration. You know what I mean by that? Well, when you go back to the Old Testament, the people who were brought near to God, especially were the priests. When Aaron and the others were ordained, they were brought near to God to be set apart, consecrated for God's service. They were brought near. And that picture, I think, is here too. That we who were enemies of God now are consecrated to God's service. As his children, we now come to serve him instead of being disobedient. Now we love him, we serve him. We are what Peter describes in the previous chapter, verse 9, of a royal priesthood. We're priests. I'm no more a priest than you are if you're a Christian today. We're all priests to worship God, to serve God, to glorify God in everything we do. We're consecrated to the Lord. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. And as priests especially, we are to bring to the world the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of this Work that he has done to save sinners. People need to hear that. All around us are people who spiritually are in darkness. They are dead in their sins. They need to hear this. That's why we do outreach. So that people will hear this good news. That's our calling from the Lord. Christ's work is effective to bring us to God. To bring us as children of God, reconciled, no longer enemies. Now we love him. And to consecrate us to his service, we live for him. He is the heart of whatever we are doing. In our jobs, in our families, wherever we go, it's the Lord we're serving. We're priests. Every Christian is a priest to serve God and to tell the world about this great salvation. Christ's work is costly. Christ's work is substitutionary, taking the place of sinners like us. Christ's work is effective, does exactly what God planned. 
It brings us to God. We're reconciled. We're consecrated. We belong to the Lord's family. And so finally, as Peter tells us, Christ's work is triumphant. Christ's work is triumphant. Because Peter reminds us, we are not just thinking of a Savior who died for us. He's alive. He's no longer dead. He has paid the price of our salvation. He's discharged our debt. And now he is free of the claims of death. Christ is risen. Peter tells us he is made alive by the Spirit. The Savior is alive. We are preaching a living Savior today. His death on the cross is followed by the triumph of the resurrection. And that is just as important as his death. If Jesus had remained under the power of death, we'd have to say, well, he failed. He was defeated. But he wasn't. He is alive. He's alive. He's in glory. He's reigning. He has triumphed. And he is waiting for the appointed moment to come back again in glory. The resurrection is the ultimate vindication of the work of Christ. How do we know that Christ has really done what he said he would do? How do we know that Christ really is who he said he was? The resurrection is the ultimate proof. That's why it was always part of the preaching of the gospel. Look at the book of Acts. They preached Christ crucified and risen. And if Christ hasn't risen, there is no gospel. There's no salvation for any of us. But as Paul underlines in 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter about the resurrection, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. All who trust in Christ will share in that resurrection when Christ comes back again. And his resurrection guarantees our resurrection to share his glory. All who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, will share in his glory at the last day. We'll share in his triumph. Isn't that a wonderful prospect that the Christian has? That this Savior in whom we are trusting is risen in triumph and we'll share in that triumph when he comes back again. Christ died for us. Christ's work is costly. What a value God has put in us. Christ's work is substitutionary. He's taken what you and I deserve. Christ's work is effective. It brings us to God, reconciled and consecrated. And Christ's work is triumphant. As he's risen in glory, so all who belong to him will rise in glory. Are you trusting in this Christ today? Has he forgiven your sin? Has he brought you to God as one of God's children? 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel we must believe if we are to be saved, if we are to be with Christ in glory at the last day. Christ died for us. Make sure your hope and your trust are in this wonderful Savior who has done such a glorious work for sinners like us.